Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right. Welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we're going to continue our series on appreciating Jewish culture you know, in the first century. Like, if we're going to be students of the Bible, you really do have to understand Jewish culture because there's so much um, in especially the New Testament that you will not really be able to understand well, right, if you don't have an appreciation for the those times in that culture. Okay, so today we're going to look at the oral law. Okay, the oral law. And, you know, a lot of Christians know what the law is. It refers to the law of Moses. Okay, so generally speaking... In the Bible, when it refers to the law, it's speaking of the law of Moses. These are the 600, and I believe 13 commands um, in the first, you know, five books of the Bible. All right, the first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah, in um, you know, in Judaism, and then you know, in the book of Exodus, the second book, you know, Moses starts getting these commands, and that's much of like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, huge parts of Deuteronomy are have all of these commands in there and that's all the mosaic law okay so that's that's the law but what most christians don't know about is that there was also an oral law okay so the mosaic law would be the written law and then there would be an oral law okay so the oral law was basically the commentary through the generations um that was never written down but was kept orally and the idea here was that um, rabbis or you know leaders in the community would discuss the law, right, and would make rulings on the law, um, and that would be part of the oral law. So, like a classic example is you know the Mosaic law says that you shall not work on the Sabbath, um, but then the question it kind of begs the question: Well, what constitutes work? right? Like, it's not super clear about what exactly is work and what isn't. And so you would have the leaders of Israel, they would discuss, right? The religious leaders would discuss, and then they would make authoritative rulings, okay? And um, in the time of Jesus, this was the job of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the ruling council of um, the ruling religious council, okay? So it was 70 members of the leaders of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know, the priests, you know, it's so it mentions the Sanhedrin a couple times, but the job of the Sanhedrin was they were like, you know, the, the religious ruling council, and they would make authoritative decisions on what constituted things like work, okay? So everybody in, in Israel knows that you can't work on the Sabbath, but what exactly is work and what isn't? And so they would make decisions about what work, what is work and what isn't, and um, and that would become binding on the entire community of Israel, okay? But that wasn't a part of the Mosaic law, that was part of the oral law, okay? Or the traditions of the elders, all right? So this is how it was referred to. And what you're gonna see is that Jesus is very careful to follow the written law of Moses, all right, because that's what was directly given by God to Moses, right? Um, but you're going to see that he breaks many of the oral laws, okay? And um, that's because they're not authoritative to him. All right, he doesn't consider them, like he, he actually says in several places that they're wrong, okay? And so he doesn't feel obligated to keep those traditions, and his disciples don't either. And this is a huge reason why the Pharisees get upset at Jesus, right? This is a huge stumbling block for them, right? That he will not respect 
the oral law because this is the tradition of the elders. Like, you know, if you go, you know, to certain churches, like I, I spent a lot of time in the Korean church, you know, in the Korean church, you know, there is a, a strong expectation that if a younger leader is going to obey an older leader, like that is ingrained in the culture there, right? So if you don't obey or you don't appear to be very obedient, right, um, then it's going to be hard for you, right? Well, in the same way, in Jesus's culture in first century Israel, there was this expectation that if you were, you know, a younger rabbi, right, or somebody who's teaching, you had to respect right, all the traditions that have been passed down through the generations, right, this oral law, the traditions of the elders, like that was an important aspect, and yet Jesus didn't. And so this is why um, one of the big reasons that many of the leaders of the Pharisees and Sadducees um, rejected Jesus, okay? So we're going to take a look at some of these passages just to uh, get some evidence of this, okay? So in Matthew 12, um, it says this, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Whew. All right, pause here. Okay, um, that's a huge statement that he's making there, right? So when he, first of all, when he uses that terminology, Son of Man, all right, um, a lot of people, I think, tend to think, oh, he's just saying, like, you know, he's a human, a son of man, a son of Adam, something like that. Um, and that might be part of it. I, I don't think so. But what it's probably referring to is Daniel 7, okay? In Daniel 7, um, Daniel has a vision. Um, and, you know, in the vision, he sees one like a son of man who is seated on a throne in heaven and is being worshipped by all the nations. And he's next to the Ancient of Days. So you have the Ancient of Days sitting in one throne. And then you have another throne. And then the Son of Man, the Son of Man, is sitting on it and he's being worshipped by the nations. You have to understand as a Jew, this is a very tricky passage. Okay, this is really hard. Because again, in Judaism, um, they pride themselves on their monotheism, right? So it's difficult when you've got two figures and one of them is a Son of Man, a human. Okay? So uh, when Jesus is referencing the Son of Man, He's almost certainly referencing that, right? Like the the figure from Daniel seven who is receiving the worship of all the nations, right? And again, this is a, a very difficult thing to understand because you know in Judaism you can't have a man being worshipped, right? A man being worshipped um, is very problematic. Okay, so uh, you have to understand Jesus saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, right? <laughs> like what Jesus is basically saying is. You know, I am that figure from Daniel 7, and I have authority, right, over what is permitted on the Sabbath, <laughs> right? I'm the one who decides what is permitted on the Sabbath. You know, this is uh, incredibly offensive, right? And if you're, you know, if you're wondering, you know, is that what Jesus is really saying here? Um, you know, in Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, so before he goes to the cross, um, he has to go to the Sanhedrin, 
and they try him, and what they charge him with is blasphemy. Okay, he's been accused of blasphemy. And what he does is, when he's accused of blasphemy, he quotes Daniel 7, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. (laughs) Right? And when he says that, they tear their robes, and they say, what need have we for witnesses? Right? We just witnessed his blasphemy right here. Okay? So he was charged with claiming to be God, right, through some of these very statements when he said that I am, right, before Abraham was I am, he said that. And then when he constantly refers to to himself as the son of man, these are, you know, borderline blasphemous statements, right? Um, And this is what he's charged with at at the Sanhedrin. and And he straight up quotes Daniel 7, right, to say straight up, this is who I am. I am the son of man, the one worshiped by all the nations, the divine God man figure, that has been prophesied, right? And you have to understand, like, if, you know, it's easy for us. We're Christians 2,000 years later, and we look back on this, we're like, oh, yeah, of course, he was God, right? But they didn't know he was God, (laughs) right? How could they? How could they? How could they know that he was God, right? Such a thing had never happened, where a man claimed to be God and actually was, that had never happened before, right? There had never been a previous incarnation. So, you know, you have to have some sympathy and compassion for these Pharisees who are really trying to discern. You know, much of the story of the Gospels is the Pharisees trying to discern, is this the Messiah? Because he's doing all these miracles, and we know that God wouldn't work through somebody who's a sinner, and it's a false antichrist, a counterfeit Messiah, right? Like, how is he able to do this? But then he says these crazy things, right? Like he can forgive sins and he's I am. And it, it, you can tell they are struggling, trying to discern. And this issue of the oral law is directly coming against their most deeply held traditions, all right? And this is, this is really difficult for them to deal with, okay? So we're just going to finish up this passage. Going on from there, after he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, it says, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to them, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Okay, so you can see, like, they're they're getting very offended with him because he is, he is breaking clear customs, right? And not only that, but he's rebuking them for having these customs, okay? And he's, you know, he's acting as though he is wiser than all of their elders put together, right? And of course we know now he was right <laughs> but again for them you it, it's very difficult you know like if you put yourselves in the shoes of these pharisees i think one of the things that many christians you know don't understand about you know the pharisee movement is that it was a godly movement um you know it was a godly movement um the pharisee movement just to give a little bit of background here the um you know if if you go back to the times of the kings right jeremiah was the last prophet, but many prophets had warned that God was going to allow them to be conquered and taken them to exile. So, you know, during Jeremiah's time as prophet, um, the people are, the people of Judah are conquered by the Babylonian empire. They're taken into captivity in Babylon and they become afraid that they're going to lose their faith, 
right? They're going to lose their cultural knowledge of Yahweh. They're not going to be able to pass it on to their children, right? Their young leaders are being trained in the Babylonian system. That's what, what happened to Daniel, right? These these young nobles' children are being trained in Babylonian culture and thinking and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the leaders of Israel are afraid that they're going to lose, um, you know, their, their, their knowledge of God. And so they start the synagogue system. The synagogue system is they start to come together weekly and they... They teach the scriptures, they teach the law, right? And um, and the synagogue system is really what our modern church system is based on, right? And then um, when they return to Israel, right, you have this figure, um, Ezra, who is, is saying, hey, God sent us into exile because we forsook his commands, the law. So now we are going to hold fast to his commands. And that's really what the Pharisee movement was about. It's like, we're going to hold fast to the commands that God gave us. We're never going to allow our nation to fall into idolatry again. Okay. That was the heart of the movement. All right. And they were going to be steadfast in this and they were going to fight against idolatry. Okay. And so really, you know, the Pharisees, they were the rabbis, the teachers in the synagogues, all right? We would think of them as like the, the local pastor, something like that, okay? And they were the, um, you know, they were the the more noble of the sects, okay, in Jesus' time, okay? Now, we have some other sects, if you're familiar with them, like the Sadducees. The Sadducees um, were, you know, they, they kept the temple. They were like the Levites and the priests, but they had become very corrupt by this time. Okay, and their theology had gotten really bad, right? And so, the Pharisees were really closest to correct. Okay, um, th- the problem is just like any move of God, what happens is God initiates something, and over time, um, the the organizational structures start to become corrupted. Okay, and this is what happens to almost every move of God. Okay, this is what happens to almost every denomination over time. Is that denominations are are really started by moves of God, and they're they're set in motion to champion certain truths that the Lord is really championing. Okay, but over time, what happens is they become traditions, right? And they become um, loyal to these traditions that were established long ago, um, but the 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 traditions oftentimes become legalistic okay and legalism is when you focus more on the outward appearance of holiness rather than on an inward um genuine discernment okay so uh, legalism happens you know anybody who's been part of the church has experienced legalism okay legalism is all over the place and that's because as humans it's very hard for us to discern with real discernment. So we naturally rely on outward appearances all the time, right? We look at the guy who's raising his hands and we go, oh man, that guy is is really worshiping. Or in other cultures, they're like, oh, that guy is, is, is super emotional, right? And again, neither side can know. <laughs> you can't know what's in that person's heart, right? But we judge based on outward appearances, okay? And um, you're gonna see that this is a, a common thing that's warned about in scripture, right? Like, you know, um, to David, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord perceives the heart, right? The Lord perceives the heart. And, um, sorry, that was to Samuel. The Lord spoke that to Samuel when he looked at David's brothers and like, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why? Because he looked like a king, right? David's older brothers looked kingly, right? But the Lord said, Samuel, don't fall into that trap, right? 
you people tend to look at outward appearances and think you know what's going on inside based on the outward appearance. But hey, newsflash, people are really good at pretending. <laughs> okay, They're really good at putting on a show. And so it can be very difficult to discern what's actually going on inside someone. But the Lord says that's what he's able to do. He's able to perceive and um, have true discernment. Okay, And you're going to find that this is a... Um, you know, a theme with Jesus's, you know, um, ministry, right? Where the, the Pharisees are constantly trying to discern, but they're struggling with it, you know? And Jesus really lets into them and say, like, John 5 and 6, right? When he tells them, like, why can't you discern, you know, that what I'm saying is truth and it's life, right? And he says a really interesting thing. He says, it's because you receive glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the one above, and what happens is, w- to the degree that we honor and respect men rather than God, what they think rather than what God thinks, okay, then we'll become susceptible to this type of legalism. We won't be able to discern with true discernment, okay? And that's what's going on here in these stories. The Pharisees are trying to discern, is this Jesus the, the Messiah? Is he the one sent by God, okay? And by the way, this is not just the Pharisees. Almost everybody in this time period was trying to discern because specifically of Daniel chapter 9. Okay, in Daniel chapter 9, he had prophesied that there would be 77s, okay, until the anointed comes. All right, from the time that the decree is set forth to reestablish um, Jerusalem, right, until the anointed comes, 77s, that's 490, okay? And so everybody in the first century, you know, knew this prophecy, and they were expecting that the Messiah would come around now, okay? And so they're looking, and they're trying to discern, and what we're going to see is that the, the Gospels seem to show that there were many um, false messiahs, many people who claimed to be Messiah, um, but those movements didn't work out. And that's actually what the um, New Testament means by, by um, Antichrist. Okay, a lot of people, you know, we tend to think of Antichrist as like the opposite of Christ, right? Like the the most demonic person, right? And I understand why because we see some troubling things in Revelation. But really, what Antichrist really refers to is it's it's a counterfeit Messiah. It's one who claims to be the Messiah, right? The one who fulfills all these prophecies, but it's a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. Okay, and so there were many people in this time claiming to be the Christ. Okay, claiming to be the Messiah, right? The one that was promised by the Lord. And so everybody's trying to discern, is this the right person? Is this the one? Is this the one? And Jesus had a very strong candidacy in many ways, all right? Particularly because of his miraculous powers. But the problem was that he, what happened, the leaders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they discerned that Jesus did not respect their authority, right? He did not respect their authority to, you know, make authoritative decisions on what is work and what isn't, okay? And so what they sensed was a threat to their power, all right? And what you're going to find many times is that this is what is going to freak leaders out because leaders, they spend so much time and effort and energy building organizations, right? Building institutions that all of their power is invested in. So when they feel like their power is threatened, this is when leaders start acting crazy, okay? And so what I'm just trying to do is give us a little bit of better understanding of what's going on with these Pharisees and Sadducees. We want to try and understand them in their cultural context, okay? So this is why they're, they're so upset. And, and over time, they become convinced, the leaders especially, become convinced that Jesus, right, um, is a counterfeit Messiah. And th- but the problem is that Jesus is popular, 
okay, this is a problem for them. Because as they become more and more convinced that he's a false Messiah, but at the same time Jesus is incredibly popular with the people, they start to realize that Jesus could potentially declare himself as Messiah, and he would have a huge following, and they wouldn't be able to stop him. Right? And then what they're concerned about is that if he does that, he could lead a rebellion against Rome, and then Rome would come in and destroy them. Right? That's what they're worried about. Because if he's a false messiah, then any rebellion that he leads against Rome is going to fail. All right. So you have to think from the from the perspective of the of the leaders of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is what they're concerned with. This is why um, I believe it's Caiaphas. It's either Caiaphas or Ananias. I can't remember who is the the high priest at that time. But the high priest says he says to them, "You know nothing. It is better for one man to die than the entire nation to suffer." Right. And and he's actually prophesied. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. But this is this is a really interesting example because what you're going to see is that many people who prophesy don't really understand what they're prophesying if the prophecy is true. <laughs> right? That's why we always have to test prophecy, okay? He didn't understand what he was saying. He did prophesy accurately, right? But he didn't understand the nature by which Jesus was going to die, and he actually thought it's what we have to do is we have we have to kill him. It's God's will for us. He interpreted the prophecy that he gave as that it's God's will for us to kill him so that the nation wouldn't suffer, all right? That's how he interpreted it, okay? And um, it, it was completely wrong, right, the interpretation, and it actually resulted in, you know, the nation suffering. If you know the history, 40 years after Jesus dies, um, another person claims to be the Messiah. He leads a great rebellion against Rome, and Rome comes in and smashes the nation, scatters the people. That's the great diaspora, the scattering of the Jewish nation for 2,000 years. Okay, so exactly what they were afraid would happen, happened, right? Um, But their desire was to save the nation. They were trying to save the nation because they saw Jesus as somebody who's dangerous for the nation, okay? But this is the problem. Um, uh, leaders, you know, we tend to think we know best, <laughs> right? And and look, God's ways are hard to discern, okay? His ways are so hard to discern. And so I have a lot of compassion when I read, you know, these stories about some of these Pharisees really trying to, to understand, but I can, I can see, you know, like... I can see how many of them are getting offended and others are just confused and trying to figure it out. And what you're going to see is that actually many Pharisees come to faith, okay? Many Pharisees come to believe that Jesus was the true Messiah, all right? And that happens in the early days of the church, okay? In the early days of the church, um, you know, it actually talks about how many Pharisees, you know, came to know him. Um, and then, you know, many of the believers in Jerusalem were zealous for the law. That's because there was a strong Pharisee presence in the early church. And, uh, you know, I think most Christians don't know that because we tend to think Pharisee equals evil, right? But that's that's not really accurate, okay? Okay, um, the other passage I just want to look at just very quickly, okay, is very similar in Mark 5, and it's over the issue of um, washing hands, okay? Hand washing, okay? So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. 
But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Okay, so this is where Jesus is really taking issue with huge parts of the oral law. By the way, today, um, rabbinic Jews, Orthodox Jews, you know, um, they continue to follow the oral law. It's called the Talmud. Okay, so what happened is um, when Jesus was crucified, all right, and then, you know, he, he was raised again, and then the Romans came in in AD 70 and destroyed Jerusalem, what happened is the, the Pharisees gathered together. And I forget the name of the city that they gathered together, but they gathered together because they had the same concern, that the nation of Israel was now scattered, they had no homeland, they had no temple, and so they're very concerned that they were going to lose their knowledge of God, that they were going to forget him and all this kind of stuff. So what they did was they decided to write down the oral tradition, okay, the oral law, and, and that became the Talmud, okay? And so the, and, and what they did was they consolidated Judaism around Pharisaic belief, okay? So the Sadducees were out now, you know, the other sects and Essenes, they were all out. And, but the Pharisees really did the best job of preserving Judaism in the way that they saw fit, and they passed that down. And that's Orthodox Judaism today, okay? Orthodox Judaism is, they're the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees, okay? So again, when Christians always talk about Pharisees and use it as a synonym for like, you know, a legalistic, you know, evil person or something like that, right? Imagine it's kind of it's kind of offensive, right? Because if you're an Orthodox Jew, the Pharisees are these are your your heroes, right? These are the ones that you highly respect um, in history, okay? And what happened was the Pharisees, they consolidated the religion, but one of the things that they also did was that they um they started to embed interpretations of, you know, the Mess- of messianic prophecy to not be Jesus. And what I mean by that is because at this time, Christianity is blowing up, okay? But it's blowing up specifically mostly amongst Gentiles, all right? So it's, ju- it's blowing up amongst the Romans, okay? Um, and they're concerned about that. And they know that many of the Christian arguments about why Jesus was the Messiah, right? Um, they know these arguments... Um, but they've decided that Jesus was not the Messiah. So what they did is they started to codify, you know, interpretations of messianic prophecy that ruled out Jesus. So, for example, one of the big evidences, you know, one of the strongest messianic prophecies, right, in favor of Jesus's messiahship, is like Isaiah fifty-three. Okay, Isaiah fifty-three. You know, he was. Um, uh, I'm going to butcher it. I don't know why I'm having a mind blank here, right? But he was he was basically tortured for our transgressions, right? He was beaten for our transgressions, all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, he did this. Oh, man, I'm totally butchering this. I better go back and just look it up. Oh, Lord, forgive me for getting Isaiah 53. All right. Very famous prophecy, right? He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That was the line that I was trying so hard to remember. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
Okay, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Okay, so this um, prophecy in Isaiah 53 is one of the clearest pictures of Jesus in all the scriptures. Okay, it's one of a number of prophecies that are under the, the banner of the suffering servant. Okay, so there was debate in ancient Jewish culture about what the Messiah would be. Okay, because there really do t- seem to be two streams of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Okay, one of them is the suffering servant. Okay, especially in Isaiah, there's n- there's a number of prophecies about this servant who suffers for the sake of the nation. Okay, and but there's also another stream of messianic prophecy. Okay, and that is the conquering king, the one who would you know rule the nations right, with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like like pottery. That's like Psalm 2. There's like so many, um, you know, uh, there's so many prophecies about that. But there's clearly like two lanes of messianic prophecy, okay? And in fact, there was debate um, in the first century about could there be two messiahs, right? Maybe there's Maybe there's more than one. And in fact, you know, when you look at, let's say, John the Baptist, right, when he's in prison, he asks Jesus, he sends a messenger to ask Jesus, you know, are you the one or are we waiting for another? Okay? A lot of people interpret that as John was like losing faith. Okay? I don't think John was losing faith. Okay? John the Baptist. I think what happened was he was asking if there was going to be a second Messiah right? that That's my guess, okay? That's my guess. He was asking, because I think he had gotten revelation that Jesus was the suffering servant, right? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think John the Baptist had gotten revelation from the Lord that Jesus was the suffering servant Messiah, okay? But I think he wondered, was he also the conquering king, or is there another, okay? And, um, and that's a very good question at this time, all right? Because there are these two streams of messianic prophecy, it wasn't at all clear together how they fit together, you know. And nobody that I know of, I'm not aware of anyone at that time who guessed rightly, which was there's one Messiah who comes twice. Like who could have guessed that, right? Like who could have guessed there's one Messiah who's going to come in, you know, AD zero, right? And then, you know, two thousand plus years later is going to come again to fulfill all the other prophecies. You know. The, the way biblical prophecy gets fulfilled sometimes, there's no way you can guess it, okay? Like, this is this is why I have a problem, a, a little bit of a problem, with people who are 100% sure about their eschatology, right? About their theology of the future, right? Like, they've, you know, they've memorized Revelation, and they know everything that's going to happen, and they're 100% sure. I have a real problem with that. Okay, first of all, I don't, you know, fault their enthusiasm, all right? I think it's really great to study end times. I think it's really helpful. And I think it's great to, you know, have strong convictions about things. But it's a problem when you have a conviction that you know everything's going to happen, right? That's the problem, okay? Because we all see in part, we all know in part, okay? And in particular, when we're talking about biblical prophecy, I'm convinced that really biblical prophecy is given to us so that when it happens, we know that it's the Lord, <laughs> okay? I think there is there is an aspect where we are to be able to foretell. I think that is there is an aspect of that, but we're not to have the full picture. The full picture is not revealed until it happens, something like that, okay? And so, 
That's one of the reasons why, when it comes to my own eschatology, you know, I kind of lean towards premillennialism. I lean towards like a post-tribulation premillennialism. Um, it's called historic premillennialism. But I, I, I always try and be careful to be not be too dogmatic on that, just because um, I don't think anybody's figured the whole thing out. I don't. You know, it's possible, you know, I I don't know, right? That's my whole point. I don't know, okay? It is true. Maybe one of these views is 100% completely correct, and it's going to happen exactly as they have, you know, predicted. But I doubt it, okay? Because when I look back at biblical prophecy and how it was fulfilled, it's just so hard to, 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 to guess that it would be fulfilled in the exact manner that it ends up being fulfilled. You have prophecies, you know, prophecies notoriously difficult, you know. Um, you've got prophecies where one line is fulfilled, you know, in in one year, and then the next line isn't fulfilled for hundreds of years later. You know, like, how how do you, how do you guess that, you know? Like, I don't know how, how anybody could, get, could have guessed that, you know, but that's how it is. And in fact, what you're going to see is that much prophecy is fulfilled multiple times, right? In fact, there's this understanding of prophecy, of fulfillment, that it means to fill up to the full, meaning you'll have minor fulfillment, minor fulfillment, minor fulfillment, and then complete fulfillment, <laughs> right? So, yeah, how can you tell if this fulfillment wasn't the minor fulfillment, there's a greater fulfillment to come? We don't know, okay? It's in, it's intentionally mysterious, okay? It's intentionally mysterious. One of the, you know, one of the things I like, uh, Michael Heiser talks about how one of the purposes of prophecy is to hide things from the powers, right? God gives messages to humans who prophesy, and they're actually intended to be, you know, messages to the powers, but also hide things from the powers, meaning the powers don't understand, meaning the spiritual rulers in the heavenly places, <laughs> they don't understand all these things, right? They're trying to piece things together too and guess, and this is it, this makes perfect sense of the biblical data, right? And it makes perfect sense why Jesus is incarnated and it says the powers conspired to put him to death and yet they didn't understand that by doing so, they would actually give to Jesus his greatest victory. They didn't understand the plans of God. If the rulers of this age have understood it, they never would have put the Lord of glory, you know, um, they never would have slain the Lord of glory, right? That's how Paul puts it. I forget exactly where, right? Like, that makes perfect sense, right? This, it, it's, there's a lot of mystery in all of this. And this is why I think it's really important that we have humility when we regard the scriptures. Like, I love the scriptures. I really try and study them every single day. Um, and I, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't understand. And I think that's healthy. I think it gives us, you know, a certain, you know, humility regarding all this stuff because uh, look we're going to have eternity to figure a lot of the stuff out i think we're going to be figuring out you know the depths of god's wisdom and how he put you know how he implemented his plan i think we're going to be figuring stuff out thousands and millions and billions of years later and being like wow that's amazing i just realized he did that you know for this reason he fulfilled that scripture in a way that i never saw I think that's possible. So, you know, in this age, the reality is we're like little kids, you know, um, you know, trying to figure out, we're like little babies trying to figure out these grandmaster chess masters moves. Okay. Do we understand them? No, not really. Can we begin to understand maybe a little bit? Maybe. <laughs> okay. But there's a lot we don't know about all of this. Okay. All right. Um, 
Uh, there was some stuff that I missed there to mention, but I think that's a good place to wrap up. All right. I hope that episode was helpful for you. Hope you understand a little bit more of the oral law versus the written law and a little bit more of Pharisaic culture and tradition of the first century. All right. God bless.